Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I will be your host today. And I love today's episode because it is always so fun to talk to a current active founder or a head of sales on this podcast because they get to share the things that they're working through as they work through it. Uh, their stories are not diluted by memory and history as many people uh, who speak about the things that they've accomplished years ago. But for these CEOs and heads of sales, it's really fresh of, uh, top of mind. It's fresh, and it's they get to share the challenges of what they're working through right now, the strategies that worked just last week, and, and maybe some of the plans for the future. And then we get to revisit that and see how they do. Um, and today's guest is awesome. Her name is Leanna Cohn. And Leanna is the CEO and founder of Switch, which is one of the leading jewelry rental companies and really one that started the whole jewelry rental market a few years ago. You can check them out at joinswitch.com. And Leanna is incredibly thoughtful about our, how to give her customers a top-tier experience and, and what that means for acquiring more of the right users in the right ways. Uh, this is an incredibly important aspect of the early-stage sales efforts at any company, which is understanding who your first 100 users are. If you're a B2C company, you could probably think of it in that perspective. And if you're a B2B company, maybe who your first three or four most interested customers are. What similarities they have and where can you go to find more of those? And very importantly, like we talk about often, what is the common language of these people? How do they speak or what do they talk about that you need to be able to, to speak about in their words so they know you know their problem? B2B and B2C companies require different customer acquisition strategies. Uh, and, and Leanna, having founded companies in both environments, is actually a master of knowing the differences between the two and understanding the overlap. For example, we talk a lot about trust. And the way trust is communicated in a B2C environment is very different than the way you're going to be communicating it to business-to-business uh, -business clients that one-on-one -on -one sales effort that comes in business-to-business -business, as opposed to the one-to-many that comes in, in business-to-consumer. But that core value of trust is super important in getting customers in both capacities. So it was so much fun to pick a brain about both of these things. And I hope you enjoy my conversation because I really did. But please enjoy my conversation with the Switch founder and president, Leanna Cohn. Liana Kadisha Cohn. Yes. Welcome to the Gong. Thank you. Uh, super excited to have you on because a lot of our guests, they're has-beens. They're people who many moons ago, uh, they were leading sales at their respective startups, many of them with some success. So I'm excited because we get to get into it, into the nitty gritty of what you're doing today. Um, but where I want to start is not exactly with your startup, but it's with a Chinese tea ceremony. I uh, would love to understand a little bit more about what you do there. Sure, absolutely. So I'm an amateur but avid tea connoisseur. Um, I love Chinese tea, uh, particularly from both China and Taiwan. Um, and every morning I try to brew a bowl of tea, um, either in silence or with my husband or with friends sometimes. Um, but it really kind of gets me in the right mindset to start my day, and it's a form of meditation. Uh, the reason I ask is partially out of curiosity, partially out of uh, 
wondering what other kind of practices you have leading into your day or leading into particular moments that you think help you make good decisions. I'll give you a specific context to that. Uh, when I'm preparing for a big sales conversation, especially when it's in person, I have a different kind of practice before a call, but especially when it's in person, I have my own sort of meditative routine to get myself into the right mindset. Are there any other things that you do either before a big conversation or general practices that help you get into a particular kind of mindset? So preparation for big decisions, definitely food. Um, I need to have a, you know, I can't make good decisions on an empty stomach and that's critical for me. Um, in terms of m meetings, there is preparation that you do beforehand, really the weeks leading up to it, that's just true knowledge on the topic. And with that knowledge comes confidence the day of. You're not scrambling last minute to try and find answers for whatever meeting it is you're going into or to try and find your best pitch because inherently you've brought it with you. Uh, and that's kind of the way I think about it. And so anything that goes towards that level of confidence, feeling good, um, you know, and dressing well, feeling good, um, and anything else that goes to empowerment and confidence is helpful. Do you have any particular way you like to think about structuring a sales conversation before you actually get into that meeting? Absolutely. I mean, I go through the conversation in my head and kind of let it simmer uh, before, before going into any particular meeting. Of course, you have to think about context. So when I was working at Paymax and we'd go into sales meetings, that was a B2B company. And you really have to know who you're talking to, who the decision makers are in the room, uh, who the influ key influencers are, uh, and what they're looking for in a product so that you can adequately prepare yourself and position yourself to be something that they're interested in. Yeah, I think one of the most important things that I like to do before a meeting is to come in knowing what I want to get out of it. I find that a lot of people who get in on calls, they're just getting in on calls and like, oh, we're having a call and it's going great, we're having a call and it's going great and all the calls we possibly have are great. But you can come in there knowing what you said, which is what they want to get out of it, but also what you want to get out of it and be very clear what that call is for or what that meeting's for. So this is the call where I'm going to ask for the order or this is the call where I'm going to understand this particular issue. That can help you do the right research, it can help you come with the right questions and it can help you kind of structure that, that conversation a bit. 100%. And the way I try to end every call is asking how I can be helpful. Because no matter who you're talking to, whether it is someone that you are trying to sell to, whether it's someone that you're trying to potentially hire, whether it's a company that you're trying to invest in, everyone has something that you can potentially be helpful with. Um, and it's important to ask that question because sometimes people don't volunteer that information and it goes a long way towards building a real relationship that can be helpful in so many other ways. Do you have an example of a time where you asked that question and then out came like, oh my God, well, that was a result I didn't, I didn't ever expect. Oh, it's hard to think of it on the spot. I mean, I definitely have had those situations. Um, a friend of mine, John Yushai, had something called the Five Second Favor Club. And it was in, club? yeah. I'm a, I'm a very happy member of that. Oh, club. really? Yeah. yeah. So I I'm part of it. Emails. I'm part of it also. Awesome. Um, and it's it's a similar theme to the the idea. The philosophy behind that club is very similar to the reason why I asked that question. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do, like going and liking, a, you know, article somebody wrote, um, or or checking out, um, you know 
someone, someone's website and providing feedback or just sharing certain information among friends if you're in the person's demographic um, or helping you know hire someone. I guess probably one of the most helpful ways, um, one of the most helpful uh, times that I've uh, worked with someone and asked them this question is when they asked me, they were looking to hire, uh, hire for a specific position. And I had a friend who kind of fit that role and they ended up hiring them. And so with just a simple question, you can get you know, a lot out of it. Yeah, I, I find that sometimes when a startup is speaking with a much larger company, that larger company who's used to having all these resources might, if you say, how can I be helpful, might ask for more than you're able to give at times. And it's very tempting to want to give those things. And I'll be quite specific. Um, I work in autonomous vehicles. We talk to the largest fleet owners in the world. Every name a company has got a million trucks and, and we have some sort of conversation with them. So sometimes when I've gotten in and ended the conversation with how can I be helpful, they say, oh my God, you've got to come speak at our thing. You've got to help us write up this report. You've got to provide this bit of information. You've got to talk to my pal this. And it's all interesting conversations that feels like progress, but it's not actually getting you any closer to that progress. How do you think about managing the balancing act of how can I be helpful and, and truly being there to be helpful and then recognizing that you've got limited resources and you need to be super focused and you eventually, if you're helpful enough, need to ask for that order. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes a long way to be helpful. I, I don't think actually uh, placing too many boundaries is the key. I do think it's worth going out of your way, even in, with those people who may ask for a little bit too much, because eventually down the line, somebody will ask for something that was easy for you to do and so worthwhile on both your ends. And you're not being helpful just so that you get something in return then, but it's kind of like good karma. And the world is so small, the world that we operate in is so small that eventually that karma does come back to you in some form or another. So you, you've uh, had your own startups now in two different capacities. One was a B2B environment and one a B2C. Uh, give me a, a quick kind of 20-second summary on each, but my question is how do you compare the sales process and probably more than that, the skills you need to be a successful salesperson in those two different environments? Sure, absolutely. So with Paymax, the B2B gaming company, we white-labeled uh, games that other organizations would use to gamify their experiences, to provide an extra activity on their app, or just fully do um, their digital experience uh, and create, you know, a platform where members ke can keep tracks of track of their accounts and, um, you know, play along with games for loyalty and other sorts of programs. Um, and in that. In that role, uh, I was chief product officer, but I went along on sales meeting, particularly to figure out how we could best alter the product that we're offering to the specific company. Uh, we worked with government a lot of times, state governments um, who, state government members who were in charge of the lottery. Um, and the lottery actually used our technology uh, to create digital forms of their games on apps. Um, and so when I was selling essentially to 
these government members, you really have to keep in mind what their constraints are, how your company is going to be helpful to them. And ultimately, there's actually another important consideration, which is even when it's B2B, um, in this case, it was B2B and then a B2C. Because eventually, there's an end user who is not that particular company that you are selling to. And you have to constantly keep that in mind as well. Because your ultimate value is coming from that end user. At Switch, which is a jewelry rental subscription company, we sell directly to our customers. We're a membership service, and by providing the best product we can, uh, our members stay on for longer, and that retention is really our measure of success. So there's both the sales process of onboarding new customers, which generally takes you know, three to seven touch points, they say, to learn about the brand, recognize the brand, know that there's a need for it in their lives. And then once you have retention and customer satisfaction, there's another type of selling, which is essentially members to members, word of mouth, and how people talk about you out in the world. And going back to what I was saying earlier um, about just you know, trying to ask people how you can be helpful, you have to do the same thing with your customers. The more helpful you are to them, and you know, really with integrity doing it to create a better experience for your customers, the happier they'll be with you and the more they'll share about your product to other, um, to other people. About half of our current members are word of mouth uh, additions. And we're so proud of that because that means that we're really providing value. So yeah, I think trust is really, really important, especially in a B2C context because when you're selling per individual, you know, in a B2B context, you got to please uh, the whole family and all the cousins and everybody to get agreement and the board and, and everyone else. In a B2C context, you've got to please each individual separately and each one relies on you for the blog post that they read and trust, for their recommendation, for the refund that you give within 48 hours or, or whatever you say you'll give. How did, tell me about starting Switch. Uh, where, did your, where were your priorities in your first, say, three to six months of starting Switch? And then where did your first, say, 100 customers come from? Sure, absolutely. I'll answer that in one second. I want to add something to my previous answer about Paymax. It's really interesting to think about selling to an organization because of the many people that you are selling to. You're selling to the person who's directly integrating your product. You're selling to the person who has to deal with uh, kind of the, being a liaison between your company and theirs. Um, and then you're selling to the managers, the financiers, everyone else in the organization who's responsible for its ultimate success. And so on all of those levels, you have to consider you know, how your relationship is with that company and the value that you're providing on those different levels. Going back to Switch, um, you're essentially asking about the first 100 customers. So we started with 90 products, um, 90 different styles of jewelry, and we had one unit of each of those. Where did these, uh, where did these jewelry pieces come from? We essentially, before we, we really launched the company, Elliot and Adriel, my co-founders, went and bought a bunch of jewelry and just put it online, 90 styles, one, of e one unit of each. Um, and originally, you couldn't even necessarily choose your exact item that you wanted. You had to kind of set a queue, you know, your top three, choices. And we'd send out whichever one was available. And we'd send moment. out, exactly. 
And each of those styles, you know, was from a different brand, a different category of jewelry. And we really did this without spending any money on marketing, just to see what the response would be. We had an Instagram page, and that's kind of where people were learning about us. Um, but in the beginning, we didn't spend any money on marketing or influencers. Um, and we were trying to really understand what the need is in the market. Um, my co-founders and I had both thought about this similar concept uh, in different spaces. Um, they were really thinking about it from a jewelry perspective, and I had originally been thinking about it for apparel, and Rent the Runway came along at the time they weren't doing subscription, but I loved this idea of subscription retail. And apparel at the time, I was just thinking is too difficult. There's dry cleaning. There's so, so, so much logistics involved to manage. Um, but when my co-founders told me about this idea for jewelry, I, you know, they didn't have to explain anything else because I understood the logistics are much simpler. It's easy to clean. Jewelry is built to last. So this whole idea of sustainability is really wrapped into it. Um, you know, jewelry is meant to last for generations. So it's very easy for our customers to be sharing this closet because, you know, it feels, our, it feels very natural and the jewelry stays very well maintained, uh, which is really the goal of quality jewelry. People are meant to pass it down from generation to generation, but we're living in an era where people are uh, very used to the idea of um, impermanence and wearing something that they want in the moment that they want it uh, based on how they're feeling in that moment. Um, and so we try to position ourselves for those people as a win-win for both so us and the company. So who were the, the first company. people who found out about you? Where, where did they find out about find out about you? So originally we weren't necessarily targeting any specific demographic. What ended up coming back to us is mostly women in their... 20s, 20s and 30s, who are young professionals, who have very busy lives, and who want a curated experience of quality jewelry. It's something that adds a pop in their day. It's something that makes them feel uh, sexier, happier, more confident, um, and provides that feeling of getting a new gift. You know, a package comes in the mail, you've chosen it, and you feel when you unbox our our box that you've, you've really gotten something new. And even though we don't have the element of surprise baked in because you do choose your own items, um, there is that surprise in the curation. So every week we send out a newsletter uh, and allow people to choose their own items. But going back to the demographic, um, we our, our main customer has essentially proven to be these young women who are very busy, who are technology uh, technologically savvy, um, and who really want an easy way to feel great. Uh, they want the hard work to be taken out of it. They're, they also are very conscious about how their purchases are affecting the environment. Sustainability is important to them, and we've taken a lot of steps in our company to make sure that we're um, energy conscious as well as trash like conscious. You hear a bit about what you're, you had no idea who the customer would be in the beginning. Right. A few of them came to you. They're all sort of similar in some ways. They all had the same complaints and the same enthusiasms and the same worries. And you brought that back into the kinds of products you should build. Absolutely. There is, there's this idea in design thinking that you start from empathy, then you go into ideation, you make a prototype, 
and you test it, and then you have to go back out. And there's a very similar thing you do with your customer. You kind of want to see who gravitates towards this product, learn more about them, what their needs are, test that, and then actually go very narrow into that demographic, which is, I'd say, where we are right now. And then you kind of go back, back out and see, well, who else fits so that's this? Actually, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's my favorite topic of conversation, yeah. is going narrow, because I think so many founders, especially the ones who want to throw a visionary in their title, don't want to go narrow. They refuse to go narrow. Going narrow is compromising on their vision. Going narrow is the end of everything that they want to build. And I think that's the most frustrating thing I could ever hear because I see going narrow as the first step of a giant ladder where you don't even know where step six is. You just got to make it up the first one. Absolutely. I would much rather create a brand and a company and a service that fewer people love and adore and can't get enough of and can't keep can't stop talking about than be um, something that's just not exciting for a very large group of people who just happen to be customers. And slowly, slowly, you can create that fan base and the, the cult following uh, in a larger way, in a scalable way, but you really have to hone in on who loves your product that much and why um, and start with making them happy. Have you ever read the blog post by Kevin Kelly, A Thousand True Fans? No, I haven't. No, so I'll send it to you a little later. Uh, it's a fantastic post. The concept of it being, if you have a thousand people who buy everything that you send them and love everything that you do and support you in every possible way, you could have a remarkable fill-in-the-blank business following whatever the thing is. You need a thousand people who absolutely dig you. And once you have those thousand people that you please beyond all measure, then you could find your next 2,000 or your next 10,000 and so on. But if you don't have 1,000 happy people, you're never going to have a million. Couldn't agree with you more. And that's how we thought about our first 100 members and our first 1,000 members. We wanted to find people who would be most excited about this, who are early adopters, who are willing to take risks because we were learning uh, along with them. You know, as they were going through the experience, we were perfecting every package. And on the other side, in terms of retention, every time somebody canceled, we were, you know, talking to them directly. We emailed them. We wanted to know why. Um, and you can't, first of all, you can't even do that if you have a million followers. Right. If you raise a trillion dollars, put it all into marketing, signed up a bunch of people and had a terrible product or bad service or people were losing, you would never have the opportunity to ask them questions why. I think the best companies have an evolution where they really learn about their customers and their users and really use that to iterate on their product as they grow. And if you have a ton of money and you just put it all into marketing so that you gain those customers, you won't grow in that inherent value add way to your customers. And eventually that can, you know, that dies out as quickly as it comes. You said that you had to get narrow and you had to really focus on them and, and make your first thousand people happy. What are some of the things you found yourself saying no to? Some of the either demographics or segments that felt like a distraction or some of the uh, product features that felt like it wouldn't be serving those people. What's an example of something you said no to? So an example is pricing tiers. Um, we currently have three tiers for one, two, or three pieces of jewelry starting at $29. Uh, we had the option, a lot of people talked to us about having a higher tier of jewelry. Right now, all of our collection is in one category, so you can choose any piece that you like from that collection. Um, and when we thought about adding a second collection, 
that would be at a higher tier, we decided, you know, we haven't fully tapped out this market. We really need to go and do what we're doing right now, the best that we can, um, you know, create the best service for jewelry and the best place for people to go buy jewelry, um, as well as borrow it. Um, and then ultimately we can move into other verticals. I mean, another example of this is no non-member can just purchase a piece off our website. You have to be a member. And that excludes be lots of people who probably would be happy to purchase one off. And that's revenue that we're missing out on, but that's to further our cause of really showing what our priority is here, which is the subscription membership, because we really think that's where the value lies and people are, you know, seeing that. Yeah. Uh, tell me about pricing. So that's a really, really difficult decision that often the founders make with their first head of sales or marketing and there's different strategies of pricing. You might go super low in order to just acquire everybody. You might go super high in order just to acquire the people who absolutely adore you. You might do something Jeffrey Fox calls just pricing to value or dollarizing your value. How did you guys think about where to price your product and, and how did you settle on what you settled? So there are two ends of a spectrum for a business. There is trying to you know, bring in the most money you can and finding that the value, um, the dollar that people are willing to pay for your product or service. And then on the other hand, you want to price in a favorable way so that you're inclusive to as many people as possible. And, um, you know, price doesn't become a factor of competition. So the way we kind of set... At that point, I want to highlight that you don't want price to become a factor of competition. If the only thing you are, if somebody asks how you're different, you say we're cheaper, you're dead. You're absolutely dead. Exactly. And so, so we really thought about what's the most inclusive price point we can do, um, which I believe that $29 a month is something that almost any woman can afford. It's $1 a day, essentially. And for that $1 a day, you're gaining essentially equity in the jewelry that you're renting because you get 5 to $10 a month in accruing purchase credit every month. Um, as well as access to $650 jewelry on average. That could be anything from you know, jewelry that's $150 to jewelry that's $2,000. And that's another very interesting uh, aspect is where we choose to put our boundaries. So we don't carry anything on the site that's under $100. And that's to go towards really showing our members that we're trying to provide them with quality pieces um, that they may not want, not be able to, or not want to buy otherwise, uh, so that they can, you know, rent this for as long or as little as they want, and with free shipping, choose their next item at any time. Uh, so you, you talked about competition earlier, how price is not the way you want to differentiate from competition, because that's short-termist, and you won't be able to continue giving your customer what they want with that. There, if you just Google jewelry rental service, there's a bunch of companies that come up. How does Switch differentiate? And where do, you, where do you emphasize your differentiation? How do you acquire users in a world where there's a lot of companies that come up if all you do, the only research you do is type in jewelry rental service? Right, so I think we've been doing an incredible job at differentiating ourselves just as a jewelry rental service because I'd say we're providing one of the highest values for a membership rental service in terms of the types of brands that we offer, the type of jewelry we offer, real diamonds and gold, Chanel, Hermes, Dior uh, brands. 
those being vintage, um, as well as new exciting brands um, like Mateo, Sophie Ratner, uh, brands that you'd find in, you know, Neiman Marcus and Saks, um, and things that people are really looking for in a curated way. But on the other hand, um, we're at a low enough price point where it's not cost prohibitive, and it makes financial sense for someone to come and rent this jewelry. Because essentially, instead of uh, buying this $700 piece of jewelry, you have two years or more of membership where you have unlimited free switches. And the value that we offer that's different from any competitor is also in our curation, in the brand that we're curating, in the community that we're curating. We want people to come onto our site and see what they love automatically. And if they didn't know they loved it before, we want them to find something that now they love. Um, and there's a kind of emotional dance that happens with that that includes both trust, empowerment, and... Um, just a aesthetically pleasing selection. And so ultimately, one of the most important things for selling our service is starting with our selection. Uh, because as long as we have a great selection, we really believe that users will be coming to us. So to that end, we do exclusive partnerships um, and all sorts of exclusive collections like we did with Nadine Asoy last month. Uh, but we're constantly bringing new and exciting products. How much time do you spend looking at what the competition is doing? Very little. Uh, and the reason for that is, you know, there, there is a value in understanding what are best practices, how are smart people thinking about these problems. Um, one of my co-founders is very close friends with uh, the CEO of the Black Tux. And so there are similar companies that are in the rental space, uh, thought leaders, I'd call them, and we are lucky to have them in the industry because there's a lot to learn from other people. That being said, when you think of competition as a scary thing, uh, I think that's very problematic because it distracts you from what you should be doing. Most startups are not failing because of competition. They're failing because of their internal struggles and not focusing on making the best products and service possible. So by far, um, our priority is on the customer experience and our product offering, not on what the competition is doing. That being said, I don't think we have um, true competition because of the unique pieces that we're offering and um, you know, our price point to value offer. Yeah, uh, there's a line in, in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, where he said that every startup wants to claim that they're a monopoly. Right. And every large company <laughs> wants to claim that they have competition left and right. Right, it's so true. <laughs> and what's interesting, or, or, you know, how can a startup that's a year old have a monopoly on anything? Well, the way you have a monopoly on something if you're a year old is if that something is really small and if you're really focused on that thing. I find it really comical when a startup to me starts defending like, oh, here's all our competition and, and here's why and here's how we're gonna shut them down and this is the thing. Like, how can you possibly be wasting your time on another company that's also two years old, has, has 50 users that nobody even thinks about? Like, they are the least of your worries. You are two years old and have 50 users. Right. Like, ignore their 50 users. If you're going after a small enough pie that another tiny little one-year-old company can be biting a share of your pie, you're not, you're not thinking creatively enough or you're not focused enough. Right, we're creating something new in the world. It doesn't really exist right now. And so 
our most important goal should be on proving the value of that. Because once we do that, consumers will come to us from whether they are currently just buying regular products, whether they're afraid to be buying because you can't return jewelry when you buy it online on so many websites, or whatever it is, whatever is their reason for coming to us, they will come to us as long as we're providing the right value. Um, that being said, in terms of the competition, uh, you could say that people who are purchasing jewelry, uh, that anywhere, anywhere that they are purchasing jewelry is our competition, but it's really a shift in a mentality that we're trying to create. And once we build that and prove that successfully, then you don't have to worry about where your customers are going to come from. Yeah. When, when you do start wondering where your customers are going to come from, what are some of the growth hacks or, or experiments that you guys either have run or that you're looking forward to running uh, to try to acquire more users? So originally, we didn't really use influencers. We had tried that a little bit. And I think we came to a realization that influencers are more effective when people have heard about the brand before, when there is a certain level of trust, when they can go on your Instagram and see that you have thousands of posts from other people who have tried the service. Um, and so that's something that we're starting to look into now. This is you know, one of the first few podcasts that I'm doing. And so we want to start, yes. And so I'm excited to reach our customers in a new way. Um, but essentially the most important part of our journey that we're on right now is teaching the world what Switch is, showing them what our product is um, and really getting that narrative out there. Because most of the women in our demographic have never heard of us. And so the My first... I've probably never even heard that they could rent jewelry, period. Correct. Educating them on the category is unfortunately your job for now. Yes, and we're lucky that there have been other people who have taken down the stigmas to rental. Um, and so we kind of have that door already open to us. And we're just going out and really telling people about this idea. The number of times I've heard, oh, no, that's too good to be true. Is it really that, you know, is it really that price for what you're getting? And after trying the service, they'll upgrade um, to more pieces at a time. And anyway, th there are a lot of things to consider, um, but essentially uh, we try and find our customers wherever they are. So we have done guerrilla type marketing uh, in person, but the thing we're really focused on is getting the narrative out there, getting these authentic experiences out there. We do have some influencers who are also just um, just using our, our product and they're paying customers because it makes so much sense for their lives. Yeah. Uh, awesome, Lana. This has been a ton of fun. I want to switch very quickly to a few rapid fire questions. Great. I'll ask them quickly, but you can take your time to answer them. Uh, are there any books, book or books, that you gifted a lot, either about entrepreneurship or sales? Yes, hold on, I'm forgetting the name. I want to look it up so that you have it. All right, while she looks it up, I'll tell you about uh, the book I'm reading now, which is this challenger sale. The premise of it being that push, that your client is not just buying your product, they're buying your intelligence. And so that has been a really, really interesting thing. And actually reading this book, I've been running a few experiments. I had a call today, and instead of doing all that relationship building, asking the questions about their biggest problems and that standard, I experimented with being a little bit pushier, and we'll see how that ended up. I'll let you know next week. I can't 
can find it right now. No, um, after all that. <laughs> but, but I will say one of the recent books that I read that I love, it's Anti-Fragile. It's, a, it's a, not necessarily a business book, but I do think it's very relevant to entrepreneurs in the sense that we're living in a world today where people are extremely sensitive and you have to kind of build a thick skin to make progress in the world. Um, so it's just a, a kind of more philosophical book that I found very insightful for my life as an entrepreneur. Uh, is there a sale? We'll get back to the book later. I'll, All right. I'll mention it in the show yeah. notes. Uh, is there a sale that you are particularly proud of landing? I think... I mean, hmm, that's a that's a good question. We have so many members, and I'm really proud of having all of them. I'm particularly proud of the people. You know, I actually do have one in mind. So there was a, an 18-year-old girl who emailed us that she had borrowed a Chanel necklace for her prom. Um, and that it just elevated her confidence and made her feel so good that she could wear what she wanted uh, on a night that was important to her. Um, and so she became a Switch member after, you know, she became a long-standing Switch member after that. Um, but it just made me very happy to know that we can have that level of impact on someone's important moments and just throughout their daily life. So that was a really, you know, heartwarming message. And she sent us some pictures, you know, it was really cute. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, who is an influencer that you like to follow? Um, let's see. I have plenty of business influencers who I love to follow. And luckily, you know, many, many great friends in Silicon Valley. Um, Austin Allred, the CEO of Lambda School. I follow him on Twitter, and uh, my husband was actually on the board of his company before, but I think he's posted really inspirational things, both about being an entrepreneur as well as just kind of life hacks and, um, you know, trying to be, trying to create success and happiness wherever you go. I love it. Uh, the reverse of that, who is an influencer or a celebrity that you really want wearing Switch jewelry? Ooh, good question. Let's see if we can get her. Let's see. Um, sorry, I'm not so f quick at answering your <laughs> rapid fire questions. I have to think a little bit. Um, there are just, there are so many people. Um, you know who? Greta Thornburg is a good, oh, a good one. <laughs> Let's it. get her wearing Switch. She's at Davos right now, so we'll, just, we'll, yeah. we'll hop on the that's, next Gulfstream jet a, and tell her. That's funny. Uh, that's awesome. Um, very important question. This interview is being recorded in between the football championship weekend right. and the Super Bowl. So we have ourselves a Chiefs Niners Super Bowl. What is your prediction? By the way, this is going to come out right after the Super Bowl. What is your prediction, Chiefs or 49ers? Who's going to win? Oh, God, this is so not my arena. Like, I have. You know, I have. Football game this year, but it's worth asking. I'll say 49ers. Yeah, why not? All right. All right. Yes. Uh, Lana, where can people find out more about you and Switch and everything that you're working on? So Switch, just on our website, www.joinswitch.com, or our Instagram page, at Switch. Um, and in terms of me, I, you know, I come out sporadically to talk about Switch, but um, hopefully I'll be doing more podcasts and um, other interviews. I love it, Leanna. Thank you very much. Thank you.
well, there you have it. Leanna Cohn, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to learn more about Switch, check out joinswitch.com or find Leanna Cohn, that's C-O-H-N, anywhere on the internet. And if you liked what you heard today, it would mean so, so much if you left us a review or a rating, told the world that you liked what you heard. Or you can find me all over the interwebs at alubarski2. Reach out on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Always happy to chat. Happy selling.